Well, good evening. It's good to see you. Hope you're having a good week. And uh, good to see you, all of you here in person. And glad for those that are joining online. I started to say good to see you online too. I don't see you. You see us, but I don't see you. But good to have you join us online as well. We always have a good number joining us for Bible study on Wednesday night uh, by a, a live stream as well. So anyway, turn to John chapter 5 and we'll continue our portrait of Jesus looking at the gospel of John uh, in our fall Bible study. John chapter 5 verses 1 through 47 this evening. Let's have a word of prayer and we will jump right into our Bible study. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity First of all, just to be your children, we thank you that you loved us, and in Jesus Christ, you took our place. Lord, as we saw the last six Sundays uh, on the cross and just the, the power and the love that was there and the suffering that you endured for us, we're thankful tonight, God, as a people to you. And so thank you for all that you've done for us. And I pray as we look at the life of Jesus tonight from John chapter 5, whether we're here in person, whether we're on online, God, wherever we are, I just pray that you would open up your words, speak to our hearts, and teach us what you want us to know. Thank you again for all that you've done, and we just commit our, our evening to you tonight. Teach us through the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, through the first four chapters of John, looking at a portrait of Jesus simply by what, uh, or primarily by what he said rather than what he did, that's what the Gospel of John is about, we ended the first four chapters, if you remember, Jesus going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And in his travels in those first four chapters, that is exactly the pattern he gives to us. And right before he left, after the resurrection, Acts 1.8, he said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Well, that's what he did the first four chapters. He traveled from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. We're told in each of those chapters the path that he walked. And we close last week, chapter 4, by looking at the first four chapters as kind of a pyramid, stair-step pyramid, up to the top and down the other side. If you remember, we looked at that. We closed the first four chapters by way of summary. If you imagine that at the very top being the mission of Jesus, you have up one side, down the other side, that are almost identical in many respects. So if you remember, the very first step would be Cana. That's where the wedding, the first sign Jesus performed, the first miracle. And then he went from there to the next step, Capernaum. The next step, the Jews rejected him. The next step, Nicodemus, the conversation. And then at the very top, the mission of Jesus. So if we go down the other side, corresponding to Nicodemus was the Samaritan woman. You saw a Jew, you saw a Gentile, you saw a male, you saw a female. It's the opposite side. Uh, you saw him going at night. It was during at noon. Uh, all of these are, are exact mirror opposites. So you go down the stair step the other side, Jesus' mission at the top, Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, and corresponding to the Jews rejecting Jesus, Samaritans receiving Jesus, which again, you would expect it to be the other way around, that the Jews would receive him and those hated Samaritans would reject him. It was the opposite. The Jews rejected him. The Samaritans received him. It's the mirror opposite. And then you close it, Capernaum, Capernaum, Cana, and Cana. And so you see that, that the structure of the first four chapters of John laid out very uh, uh, well by, by the, the gospel writer. And so now we get to chapter 5 and you start to see something different. In the first four chapters, we see others' opinions of Jesus. Chapter 5, you see his opinion of himself. First four chapters, what others said about him. 
chapter 5, what he said about himself. And so now, for the first time, the opposition of the religious leaders becomes very open, very hostile, and really becomes the first point in John 5 where they decide we have got to get rid of this man because he healed on the Sabbath and he claimed to be God. So we're going to see both of those in John chapter 5. So if you look at your outline there, first of all, letter A, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath, the first 17 uh, verses of chapter 5. This is now the third sign uh, that, that we're told. John gives us what he means by sign is a miracle. So the first one was the wedding at Cana. Second sign was healing the nobleman's son at Capernaum. And then now this is the third sign or third miracle that Jesus has done in this gospel. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we left him at Galilee in John 4. So now he's going back down to Jerusalem. If, if you've ever made that trek with us as we visit Israel from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's not a short trip. I mean, we read it one verse, we go, okay, yeah, he's Galilee, Jerusalem, okay. No, it was totally different. Uh, and so it's about an hour and a half bus ride. Uh, it's a pretty good journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. So now he's going back, going up because elevation to Jerusalem. And it was a feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast it was, Passover. We, we don't know what it was. We're not told. It really didn't matter. It's just the time that all the Jews had gathered. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem, John says, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Did you notice something about how John described the story? He didn't describe it in past tense. It happened about, uh, oh, probably about 55 years before John wrote this. So you'd expect him to write about a story that happened 55 years ago in the past tense. But he didn't. Notice what he said. There is present tense in Jerusalem. Well, there wasn't any more. But so he is, this is called uh, the historical present in the, grammatic, in the grammar and the context. You, you describe a past event as if it's happening right now. And you do that for emphasis. So something about this story, John really wanted to get across to the readers it's vitally important. That's why he used the historical present, writing in the, in, the, in, the, in the present as if it's, but it actually happened 55 years earlier. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, that's the northeast corner of, um, of Jerusalem, there is a place called Bethesda, which means House of Mercy. Today, that area is known as St. Anne's. There's a St. Anne's Church there's a St. Anne's pool. And the reason it's called St. Anne is because Mary, the mother of Jesus' name, was Anne. And the tradition is that she was from there. That was Mary's hometown. That was Anne's hometown. And so that region in the northwest, northeast section of Jerusalem, right around this area now of Bethesda, is called St. Anne's because that's uh, the, mayor, the mother of Mary, supposedly, is from that area. Those of you who've gone with us to, to that area, we always stop and have a devotion where this pool was, and then we go into St. Anne's Church, uh, which has perfect pitch. 
And so any, anytime you sing, it is amazing as you, so we'll sing as a group. We don't even have to sing well. And it sounds amazing in that chapel in the church. Those of you who've been there know what we're talking about. That's at the pool of, of Bethesda. This pool had five roofed colonnades. Now, basically there were two pools and they had a portico over each with a portico stretching between the two, very hot over there, where you could walk in the shade from one pool to the next. Now, there was believed about this pool that it had healing powers to it. They believed, there was a superstition in that day, that this pool had healing powers. If you had muscle aches or joint ailments, if you went into this pool, uh, you would be relieved of those. The pool had high mineral content. It was very oily. It was slick. It was very warm like hot springs. And so they thought there's something unique because this water is very oily and it's very warm all the time. And so they thought, ah, that means it's healing. The gods sent it down to us as a healing pool. That's what the Greeks thought. So you had all the time people who wanted to be healed of various ailments hanging around the pool trying to get in. So that's what verse 3 tells us. In, this, uh, in, in, this, in these, the colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Why blind? They thought even if you're blind, if the waters could get over your face, you could be healed because the gods have sent this to you as a gift to bring healing. So I find it interesting that Jesus would go hang around a place where there was superstition about healing in order to actually heal a man. He went to the place that they had a superstition that that brought healing, that he was the one who actually was healed. Now, look at verse 4. You don't find it, do you? Is verse 4 in your Bible? Most Bibles, it's not. And here's the reason why. Most of them go from verse 3 to verse 5, especially if you're in the ESV, which we're in tonight. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. There is no verse 4. You ever wonder why there's no verse 4? What does verse 4 say? Well, it says there was a superstition. It didn't say superstition. It just says basically uh, that, that stated as a fact when it wasn't a fact, it was a superstition. Verse 4 says that there is a belief that if you were the first one to step down into the pool after the angel would come and stir the waters up certain times of the day, angels would come down and stir the waters. If you saw the waters swirling and you were the first one to jump in, you were healed. Well, verse 4 records that but doesn't say it was any kind of belief or superstition. It just records it as if it's a fact. It wasn't a fact. It's a superstition. It wasn't true. So, some people see that as an insertion into the Bible later because verse 4 is not in any of the earliest manuscripts before 400 A.D. So, that's the reason why either your Bible will put it in parentheses, verse 4, or it will omit it altogether. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So, if you get the picture, there are all these people standing around gazing at the water, hoping to be healed, when in their midst was standing one, if they had looked to him, he could have healed them. But they weren't. 
they were looking at the water. And so there was a certain man there who had been an invalid for 38 years, we're told. What's the significance of 38? Well, theologians have kind of kicked that around for a long time, saying why 38 years? Does it hold some kind of significance? Because really the number 38 is not a significant number in the Bible. Is it just a fact or was there symbolism behind it? Well, we really don't know because the only 38 in the Bible is the number of years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness before they got ready to inhabit the promised land. You say, wait a minute, that was 40. No, they had two years of preparation. So they actually wandered for 38 years. There were two years in the Transjordan Plateau getting ready to enter the land. So they actually wandered, lost, 38 years. So some people see a connection, 38 years of lost, blindness in the wilderness, and 38 years of the man not being able to walk. 38 years of walking in a circle, 38 years of not walking at all. Maybe. And so that's what some theologians see the significance there. There's a man paralyzed for 38 years. Now the word invalid there could be paralysis or it could be severe arthritis. Either way, some think William could just had severe arthritis where he couldn't move. We don't know. But in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? A couple of things I think are interesting there. One is, it said Jesus saw the man. Notice all the invalids there aren't looking at Jesus. They're looking at the water. But Jesus saw the man who needed the help. And notice Jesus initiated it. The man did not initiate it. The man didn't say, hey, hey, the miracle worker, you've done a couple of miracles. Can you do number three here? Why don't you come over? He, he, he didn't even notice Jesus. Jesus initiated it. Went to him, asked him a question. Do you want to be healed? Now, you and I would look at that and go, duh, that's, that's why did he ask the obvious? I mean, 38 years he's been there every day trying to get healed. Of course he wants to be healed, but it's a better question than you think. Because there are a lot of people even today who they really don't want healed. They really don't want helped. They... They like their miserable condition. Strange as it may sound, there are those that really don't want help. They want you to do things, but they don't want lasting help. And so we have those today. So it's really a good question. Are you here to beg or are you here for help? Do you really want to be healed? And so it's really a good question we, we need to ask today as well. Do you really want to be different? Some, some say they do, they really don't. So we ask the question, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I am going another steps down before me. He sounds frustrated. Sounds like he does want to be healed. But he can't get there quick enough because in his mind, the troubling of the angel of the waters, he's never the first one in. It's too slow. Jesus said to him, get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now notice a couple things. Notice Jesus never touched him. Touched lepers, but he never touched him. His words were enough to heal. He just spoke. He just said, get up. He didn't walk over and say, let me help you. He didn't walk over, let me lay hands on you. No, no, he just spoke. Get up. Very simple. But his words, although simple, are powerful enough for a man of 38 years who had walked in 38 years, muscles are atrophied, to get up, pick up his pallet, and walk off. Now, usually, whenever we have had muscles atrophy for a while, they do not come back immediately. Doctors will tell you that. It takes, you have to strengthen them. When you have muscles that have atrophied for 38 years, you're going to have a while to have to work those muscles back into shape. Not this man. Instantly got up, picked up his pallet, and walked. Now, there were those that were watching this who noticed something unique. At the end of verse 9, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. There's where we have the conflict. Why didn't Jesus just wait till the next day? There'd be no controversy. Why? I mean, 38 years, is one day going to matter? No. Wait a day. It's not the Sabbath. Religious leaders are fine. Everybody looks at you and praises you. Oh, a miracle worker. And they follow you more. But that's not what Jesus did. He specifically did this on the Sabbath for a reason. You see, the miracles Jesus performed were not just to relieve human suffering. That was part of it. A man of 38 years got to walk. But that wasn't all of it. There's always a point to what he did. There's always an underlying message. And so what was the message? He did it on the Sabbath. He wanted the religious leaders to think, who is this guy? He's healing on Shabbat. But had they thought, and notice what he says to them in just a moment, had they thought about it, Isaiah 35, 17 tells us in the Old Testament, when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal the lame. Had they been spiritually entombed, they could have thought, wait a minute, healing, could this be the Messiah? But that went right over their heads because they were so concerned about their rules, their interpretation of Sabbath, that they failed to see the Messiah. So, notice what happens next, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, hold on for a second. You may say, why did Jesus break the Sabbath? He didn't break the Sabbath. We'll see that in a moment. The fourth commandment, which was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy from the Old Testament, that, as it's explained in the Old Testament, was intended to free the Israelites from having to work seven days to make a living, they needed one day to rest and honor their Creator. 
So it was intended to help the Jews to keep from working seven days. Jesus was not breaking the commandment. He was breaking the rabbi's interpretation of the commandment. Because over every commandment, the Jews developed this, the rabbis developed this intricate network of all these commands that you have to keep related to that commandment. All these rules. And one of them was, you couldn't carry your pallet except only a few steps. God never said that. The rabbis said that. So, Jesus did not mind breaking the rabbi's interpretation. He never broke God's laws. He broke the interpretation the rabbis put out. So, they said, you can only carry a pallet so far. Now, here's what the religious leaders did to get around it. If they needed to carry something on the Sabbath further than required, here's what they did. They'd carry a chair, set it down, carry whatever they needed to carry, the exact number of steps, set it down, set in the chair. That was their place of abode. Once you went to your place of abode, you could then go another few steps. So if they needed to get further than the few steps that the Sabbath allowed, they would take a chair and they would do this until they got there because that was their place of abode. Well, no, it wasn't. So they had all of these rules that they played games with. And Jesus cut through all of that and kept the laws of God, but not these silly interpretations of the rabbis. So the rabbi said, you can't take up your bed and walk this many steps. But he answered them, the man who healed me, verse 11, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So now he's kind of he's putting it off on Jesus. They ask him, who is the man who told you take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And so the man basically fearing for his own life says, I don't know, I don't know anything. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Stop there for a moment. Is there something worse than not walking for 38 years? Yes, sin. So the man could have used his newfound legs to go do illegal activities or immoral activities or sinful activities. And so Jesus said, go your way and sin no more lest you use your legs to for something that's even worse. So use your legs for good now that you have a new lease on life. The man went away, verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. I want to see in verse 17 Jesus' response to him. It's, it's, it's interesting. So, through verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he did all of these things on the Sabbath, which was, in their minds, illegal to do. Now, I find it interesting that the man blamed Jesus because he feared for his life, and the Jews had no sympathy for a man who had not walked for 38 years. They were more interested in their rules being broken than having compassion for somebody who finally gets to walk after 38 years. Now, you and I, sitting in church, go, oh, that's horrible of them. But you know what? 
Sometimes our rules cause us to lose compassion for others as well. So lest we look down our noses at the religious leaders, look at yourself and say, do I have rules that keep me from being as compassionate as maybe I need to be? Something else interesting about this man. You never see him placing faith in Jesus, do you? Faith is not required for the healing. You don't see faith in Jesus afterwards. You don't see him following Jesus. You don't see him praising Jesus. You don't hear him say anything other than going back to the religious leaders. Oh, his name's Jesus. You don't see any kind of faith. Was the man saved? Probably not. He received the miracle. But didn't it look like he received salvation? There's nothing in this text that points to the fact that he ever believed or followed the Lord. It's possible to accept God's gifts but ignore the giver. It's possible to receive a miracle from God and not go to heaven. So here's a man who received a miracle. But we're never told anything about faith in Christ. It's never mentioned. So now the religious leaders are openly hostile to Jesus. And that's coming out for the first time in the Gospel of John. Open hostility. And notice what Jesus said, verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. That's an odd response. What did he mean? Here's what he's saying. Jesus was, was saying, God doesn't stop working on the Sabbath, and I'm God. Whoa, whoa, for the first time, he reveals, God doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. He takes care of you. He gives you breath. He gives you energy. He gives you life. He sets the, the he, he brings the sun to rise and the moon to come up. And he does all of this on the, he doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. He's taking care of you. And I don't stop working on the Sabbath because I and the Father are one. So now they're really upset. Number one, he works on the Sabbath. And number two, he claims to be God. That statement, verse 17, whew, is powerful. And they knew exactly what he's talking about. Go to letter B on your outline. Uh, Jesus is equal with God. Only one verse, verse 18. Let's read it. This is why, the statement, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As soon as he said verse 17, they got it. They knew exactly what he was doing. The religious leaders got his claim. And so people today and people throughout church history that have interpreted the Gospels and, and say that Jesus never claimed to be God, they have a real problem with verse 18. John 5, 18 is a problem passage for them. Liberal interpreters today don't really know what to do with verse 18 because he did claim to be God and that's why they had sought to kill him. Now here's 
here's what a lot of critics today say about Jesus not being God. I've talked to them, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and here's what they say. On more than one occasion, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons both have told me Jesus is God's son, but he's not God. You and your son are different people. You're not your son, your son's not you. He may be like you, but he's not you. And that is Western thinking. That's not ancient Near East thinking. Because in, the, in this Western mind, if you say son and father, you're talking about different people. But in the ancient Near East, whenever you said son and father, you weren't talking about differences. You were talking about identity. You were talking about the son being an extension of the father. And so, the, the East, Near Eastern mindset was not differences, it was identity. And so, if you study the background of the passages, which obviously they didn't do, you know that. That the Near East, sonship meant identity with. That's what Paul talks about through Philippians. The father and the son are identified together. They're one. It was not differences, son and father, it is identity. And that's what they missed, and that's what people who are false, uh, believe in false teachings about Jesus today miss as well. Now let's go to letter C in your outline, verses 19 to 29, the authority of the Son. Jesus now begins to talk about unity with the Father, His divine commission, the authority He has, and proof that He's the Messiah. Verses 19 to 29 is one of the most thorough statements on Jesus' Messiahship in all the Gospels. Anywhere you look, chapter 5, verses 19 to 29, is pretty well the, the defining, the defining uh, statement of Jesus' Messiahship. So let's, let's look at it. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, <clears throat> but only what he sees the Father do. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Do you get the identity rather than difference? The identity rather than separation? Father and Son doing the same thing. Father works on the Sabbath, Son's working on the Sabbath. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's not good Greek, I know, but that's basically what he's saying. You ain't seen nothing yet. You just, you haven't seen anything that the Father has done yet. The Father is going to do much more through me that you'll see. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let's stop there for a moment. It's very possible. As he was talking, Jesus was reading their minds. How do you know that? Because religious leaders believed about God, several things, that only the Father would do, the Messiah would not do. And one of them was the Father can raise, the, the, the Father, God, he can raise the dead if he wants. He did it in the Old Testament. But the Messiah will not be able to do that. And so it's very possible, as he's talking about the Father and Son working, they're thinking, but what about raising the dead? So, 
reading their thoughts, which he'd done other times. He just came out with it. As the Father raises the dead, so the Son can give life to whomever he will. And we go six chapters later, he did. Lazarus, John chapter 11, he gave life. So he might have read their minds. Let's, keep, let's continue. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The second thing they thought about the Messiah was, the, the Father is going to be, be judge of the, at the end times, he's going to judge the world, the Messiah will not. But we see from Revelation, other passages, it's actually going to be Jesus judging the world. So, they might have been thinking, he might have read their minds again. Maybe they're thinking, well, what about judgment? And he jumped in there again because he comes up, the Father judges no one, the Son does the judging. And so it could be in verses 21 and 22, without them saying a word, he knew what they were thinking and he responded to it because he did it other places. Verse 23, all that may, all that may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now look at verse 24. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The belief was the Messiah would save the nation of Israel. And so now here is Jesus saying, if you hear my words and if you believe I'm the Messiah, you will have eternal life. And you'll not pass into judgment. You'll pass from death unto life. Now, one of the things that's interesting as we look at verses 23 and 24, he is saying that, that honor is going to come to the Son from the Father. There are those people today, there are those belief systems today that say we worship God, but we deny the deity of Jesus. We believe God's God, we just don't believe Jesus is God. And there are a lot of groups that say that. Mormons say that, Jehovah Witnesses say that, Jews say that, Muslims say that, Unitarians believe that, Universalists believe that, six denominations right there, or religions right there, that we know today, they all believe that. They believe God's, God is God. Jesus is not. But what do you do with this verse? What do you do with verse 24? I like the way Warren Wearsby puts it. Warren Wearsby says, these religious people, talking about the Mormons and the Jews and the Muslims and, 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 all, and the Jehovah Witnesses and all of these, these religious people, Wearsby says, who say they worship God but deny the deity of Jesus, they have neither the Father nor the Son. And, and he's right, isn't he? They say they worship God, they don't worship Jesus, they worship neither. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you believe in me, you must believe the Father. If you believe the Father, you must believe in me. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has granted the Son also life in himself. Of course, verse 25, talking about Lazarus, obviously. 
Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man was the Messiah. That's what all the Old Testament believed the Messiah's phrase name would be, Son of Man. And so here it says basically he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear this voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the dead. Now, one more note. Just a side note, and we'll look quickly at verses 30 to 47, we'll close. There is a, a belief system known as realized eschatology. It's kind of a big word, but what it basically means is as soon as you get saved, you get eternal life right then. You don't have to wait for it. And that realized eschatology, verse 24, is the strongest verse on what's known as realized eschatology in all the New Testament. Because it says, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him has doesn't say we'll get. One day will they have it right then. So the moment, folks, you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, you immediately pass into another realm. You're saved. Nothing's going to change that. God doesn't pull you back into another realm if you sin. He doesn't pull you out of that realm if you sin. You're saved, period. That's realized eschatology. You realize it at the moment that you have everything of the Godhead. You have eternal life. You have heaven in your future immediately. So we don't have to wait to be saved or wonder if we're going to be saved. If you trust Jesus, you got it now. Now let's go to the last part. We'll close. Letter D, witnesses to Jesus, verses 30 to 47. Here's the best way to describe it, then I'll go read over it quickly. Verses 40 to 7, 30 to 47, picture in your mind a courtroom. It's a judge. You have the accused. You have witnesses come in, and Jesus now switched the metaphor in this last section to a courtroom, the judge, the religious leaders, and on trial is Jesus. And Jesus says, you're putting me on trial, I get to call witnesses in my defense. Okay, call them. I'm calling five, five witnesses to prove I am the Messiah I am God. I can work on the Sabbath. Okay, let's hear them. So he lists them. Let's read them. Here are the five. Father God is number one, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I, as, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own my will, but the will of him who sent me. I, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Let's call in the Father, verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. He goes on later to tell us the first witness is God. Folks, if you're on trial and you can call God as your witness, it's pretty good. And he called God the Father as his first witness to the courtroom. He can testify because he attests to the works that I'm doing. So the Father Attesting to Jesus' works. Let's go to the second one. It's John the Baptist. The second witness, verse 33. You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You saw John the Baptist. You thought he was pretty cool for a while. He received his message. And he testified I'm the Messiah. Remember? 
So I've got two witnesses in the courtroom. God the Father attesting to my works. John the Baptist. It's two pretty good witnesses. Let's go to the third one. Third witness is Jesus works themselves. Go to notice to verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has seen me, has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. You saw the man pick up the pallet walk. That is a testimony from God. I am from God. So we've got God attesting to my works. We've got John the Baptist as a witness. And we've got the things you've seen me do. This is the third miracle. You've seen all three of them. So those works are my witness. Here's number four. Father God, without the works, even if I didn't do anything, God testifies that I'm, I, I am he. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what he's saying is, forget my works for a moment. God himself, by sending me, is my witness. So we've got God attesting to my works. We've got John the Baptist. We've got my works themselves. We've got God without the works. And number five, Moses. Those are pretty good witnesses. Moses, verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so we end it there in verse 47. So Moses is the final witness called to the courtroom. So Jesus saying, if you're going to put me on trial, I can bring some witnesses on my behalf in my defense. And he called five strong witnesses that he is the Messiah. One other note will close. Why don't you go back to verse 39. Something interesting Jesus said to the, to the religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. The word search there is a fascinating word. It could be either an imperative or an indicative in that mood. What does that mean? Context favors the indicative, which means this. The religious leaders studied the Old Testament for knowledge, but not for life. The Bible is not a book just of knowledge. It is a book where you find life. And folks, I realize tonight that I'm talking to those of you who you study the Bible, you studied the Bible your whole life. Those of you joining us by live stream, you've studied the Bible your whole life. And I realize I'm talking to people tonight who've studied the Bible for their whole life. But I want to warn you, never study God's Word simply for knowledge's sake. Study it because that's where you will find life. 
not knowledge. Knowledge will kill, kill the religious leaders. But life from Jesus is eternal. So as you read Scripture, don't just look for facts. Look for, notice facts. It's important. But don't just seek knowledge when you read. Seek life. Because Jesus said, you've searched and you know the Scriptures better than anybody here. But you don't have life. So make sure as you read Scripture, you are finding life. Now, questions or comments before we close? If you want to go to the uh, microphones right quick so those of our live stream can, can hear. Any questions or comments before we wrap up? Anything at all? Yes, Bill. If you want to. I'll, I'll try to repeat it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and later, in fact, in this same gospel, we're going to look at in John chapter 40. And Bill said, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what we're going to get to later. Absolutely. He talked about the word, Greek word Zoe all the way through, which was life. Amen. All right. We'll wrap up there and we'll pick up with John 6 next week. Six gets really more interesting as we dig deeper into it. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you tonight that Jesus himself is life. Thank you, Lord, as we study your word of how, how Jesus so masterfully called witnesses to his defense of who he is, what he said, and testified to the validity of his claims. And God, we know here tonight, we know that you are the Messiah. We know that you are fully God and fully man, and you're the perfect God-man to be the redeemer of our souls. And so we're thankful for that. And we're some tonight, Lord, who believe in the deity of Jesus. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that in that worship of the Trinity, you'll bless us this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. See you Sunday.